Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Hemp Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe. We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It is hard to believe that we have been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. Oh, I know. You're telling me. Producing this show week after week requires a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Just visit thenextreel.com slash originals. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great conversations. In Season 6, our Disease Films series had adaptations like The Omega Man, based on I Am Legend, The Andromeda Strain, Children of Men, and Blindness. I Am Legend is so much better than The Omega Man. What about the Will Smith version? Don't get me started. For our This Is Real Life Jack series, we talked Black Hawk Down and Seabiscuit. Some great true stories based on fantastic books. And we had more listeners' choices like The Fly, The Emigrants, and Scott Pilgrim versus the World. You just did a series on The Fly on the Sitting in the Dark podcast. Did you read the original material? Wasn't watching every Fly movie enough? <laughs> Our Big Betty Davis series featured adaptations like The Little Foxes, Now Voyager, All About Eve, and Whatever Happened to Baby Jane. Are you calling Betty Davis big? Only in personality and force. She is a force to be reckoned with. We talked about the entire The Godfather trilogy, of course. Iconic page to screen, even if it is just the one Mario Puzo book. I wonder if Coppola will ever make the Sicilian. We also had some Zhang Yimou adaptations with Judo and Raise the Red Lantern. Absolutely gorgeous movies. And don't forget the Hughes Brothers series with From Hell, based on the graphic novel. Brilliant material. Kelly Reichardt gave us Wendy and Lucy and Certain Women, adapted from short stories. Plus more Hayao Miyazaki as we tackled Howl's Moving Castle. Find all these books and more at thenextreel.com slash originals. Every purchase supports the show. Get the full list of adapted films that we've covered at thenextreel.com slash originals and start your next read today. This is 
is the next reel, everybody. I'm Pete Wright, and that there is Andy Nelson. Howdy. And we spoil movies. Tonight on the show, we sheath our swords and get into the saddle as we continue our Seven Samurai series with John Sturgey's 1960 western, The Magnificent Seven. Is that funny? I think I said John Sturgey's last time. I think I think it's is that funny or is that is it getting to a point now where it's just uh, uh, no, a bunch expected, of nonsense? Pre- predictably butchering John Sturgey's name. <laughs> Before we get into that, you should learn more about us at thenextreel.com. Subscribe to the show and your favorite podcast app, or join us on YouTube. You can follow us on Twitter and Facebook at the Next Reel. And if you've ever wondered what a Mongolian, a German, and a Jew would do if they walked into a bar, then you're just the sort of rustler ready for the Next Reel's Instagram hashtag Pony Prize hashtag Guess the Movie Challenge. And since Games Master Stephen Smart is busy hunting for some cowboys in the Scottish Highlands to defend his wee village, I'm here with this week's report. The movie this week was 1966's The Chase, directed by Arthur Penn and starring a veritable who's who of cinema. Marlon Brando, Jane Fonda, Robert Redford, Robert Duvall, James Fox, E.G. Marshall, and Angie Dickinson. And it's becoming a trend to knock these out on day one, showing us up as a bunch of image-picking ninnies. That's right. At Cotton Science was the victor this week and is once again entered to win the 2016 Pony Prize. Congratulations! (laughs) Image-picking ninnies? (laughs) Is that what we are? <laughs> well, it just sounded better than <laughs> I I wasn't sure because but I I'm pretty sure it's veritable. I don't think it's veritable. Did I say veritable? You did. Well I'm I, leaving it in there because I was reading the script Sturgis. and it just <laughs> But uh but I do want to yeah, put it well. out there that sometimes sometimes it happens <laughs> when the great pronunciator gets one wrong. <laughs> That's right. That's right. You just love it. Eat it up, baby. Eat it up. We have a blot spot this week, and I think this one is a good one. Uh, ben Lott writes in on The Seven Samurai. Yes, he does. Seven Samurai is definitely a high-quality movie. It might be the only time I actually enjoyed the forming of the team as much or more than the team's mission. The Samurais were all distinct, intriguing characters that I cared about. The length is a slight barrier to entry, but it rarely ever felt like it was dragging. Not a perfect movie, but it's pretty great. The remakes slash reimaginings in this series have a lot to live up to. Your rank 59, my rank 58. Ooh, so close. So Almost close. a tie, almost. We, we also got some follow-up from uh, a friend of the show and uh, our, our resident uh, production designer, uh, Joe Miha, who uh, yes. wrote, his, wrote in on Twitter saying that it, it, you know it, he, he loved the show, but that he did have a problem with it. Yeah, he wasn't a uh, fan that um, when we were doing our flick chart ranking that The Matrix beat Seven Samurai. Apparently, he is not a fan of The Matrix. We are sorry, Joel. I guess we just don't see eye to eye on that one. Killing us, Joel. Just killing us. <laughs> we have some. We got some great follow up. Uh, an email from uh, Johan Weilander. What do you think? I think that sounded pretty good. Yeah. Considering we're both butchering all sorts of yeah, why not? language. Uh, roll the dice. Roll the dice. Uh, he wrote in to talk to us about uh, about the girl with the dragon tattoo. He went back into the deep cuts into the archives for the girl with the dragon ta- ta- tattoo. We did that one. So early, uh, 2011, 2012, somewhere in there, I think, yeah. uh, during our uh, David Fincher series. And uh, he, he wrote in to talk about just how enthusiastically uh, the uh, remake, the Fincher remake, was received in Sweden. 
which I find really fascinating. I just I I don't know why I wouldn't have pictured it, but uh, it was great. I I think that was fantastic, and uh, it got me thinking about the Millennium trilogy again, Pete. I know, I know. Someday, Andy, someday the original Swedish uh, Millennium trilogy is going to hit. Uh, hit our schedule uh, and uh, you know i just have to say he says right in here it was like they didn't want to upset the creators of the swedish films too much by praising the remake uh but he says uh that he liked the swedish trilogy uh quite he found it quite good but the fincher remake tops it by a margin which i find really interesting because uh, stunning to me yeah. stunning to me uh but thank you mostly Johan, for writing in. We sure appreciate the email. Some great trivia uh, that he shared with us. So thank you so much. Absolutely. Andy, it's time. Let's do trailers. I'm going to do a scary one first. Scare me. What am I doing doing this movie, Andy? What am I doing? You like watching the trailers. I do. I think I do. I think I do. And, you know, I'm not... it, it's like I have a little bit of a complex that I want to do the scary ones because I'm trying to impress you that I actually watch, <laughs> watch them. So, Daddy, please love me. I am doing... <laughs> I'm doing shut-in. This is... Uh, it is a, a French uh, co-production here uh, directed by Farron Blackburn written by Christina Hodson. This was based on Christina's 2012 Blacklist uh, screenplay. Uh, stars Charlie Heaton, Naomi Watts, and Jacob Tremblay. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, the young man from Room is in this movie. It is the story of uh, a child psychologist who lives in an isolated existence in rural New England. Caught in a deadly winter storm, she must find a way to rescue a young boy before he disappears forever. A little bit of uh, weird kind of uh, spooky, occulty kind of stuff going on. We've got uh, slamming doors and lots of darkness. And you know, if Naomi Watts is good at w- really exceptional at one thing, it's it's being scared. <laughs> and uh, she she delivers it here. I uh, I thought this looked like a, a right good uh, thrill. What did you What did you think? Oh yeah, I totally agree. And uh, yeah, I, I see Naomi Watts in a horror, and it piques my curiosity. I really did enjoy. Uh, what she did in the ring. I thought it was fun to see her there. And this has just a great uh, creepy vibe to it. There's something really interesting about just the whole story that's going on here. And I love seeing Jacob Tremblay in something. So uh, I'm I'm excited to see this one and have a nice little uh, a nice little jolt of fear. Farron Blackburn uh, is. I haven't seen anything uh, any feature that Farron has done. I my sense is that this is the. Well, for, it looks like there's a, another one that also hasn't been released called Dream On, uh, but doesn't have a release date, as Shut In does. But we have seen Farron Blackburn's work, two episodes of Luther and two episodes of Daredevil on the Netflix Daredevil oh. series. So uh, get ready for this. Should be an interesting show. Uh, U.S. release November 11th. Um, U.S. and Argentina, we've got the Netherlands, November 13th, France, November 16th, Greece, November 17th, and that's about it. Mine is Little Sister, which was a, a Sundance film. And uh, was it Sundance or South by Southwest? Now that I say that, I... I think it's South yeah, by. Yeah, my South by Southwest. Um, this trailer uh, is is kind of being billed as an indie goth drama, 
<laughs> and the trailer has that quirky indie vibe going on in it, but there's something about it that uh, just kind of drew me in with these characters. Uh, the The story, according to IMDb, young nun Colleen is avoiding all contact from her family. Returning to her childhood home in Asheville, North Carolina, she finds her old room exactly how she left it, painted black and covered in goth-slash-metal posters. And she comes home because her brother, it sounds, it looks like he had returned from the war and uh, after he had been like completely uh, burned by an explosion or something. And he's just left, you know, his whole head is just burns. And that certainly has a, a part in the trailer. And it looks uh, to be quite interesting. It looks like a fun little character film, uh, very quirky. Um, we've got Addison Timlin as Colleen, the young nun. Ali Sheedy pops up as her mom which is exciting to see her in it. And uh, then her brother, uh, Peter Hedges, who uh, we really can't see because he's covered in, in burns. But uh, it looks, uh, this looks really interesting. And I'm really kind of curious to see uh, how this one, uh, how this one turns out. Zach Clark um, wrote it and uh, directed it. I don't know much of Zach Clark's work. It's, it's pretty uh, recent and very indie sort of stuff. But... I like kind of the vibe here, and I hope that the movie kind of continues uh, continues with all of that. What do you think of it? Well, you know, it pretty much had me in the in the sequence in the trailer where the the guys come to the door and they see her and they say, "We didn't recognize you without all the Marilyn Manson stuff on your face." I I was totally in. Uh, <laughs> I I uh, I really uh, I like that bit. Uh, so I thought it looked cute. Uh, it looked it was very strange to see Ali Sheedy in this film um, and. Uh, you know, I definitely have a soft spot for for Ali Sheedy, um, though I I feel like I haven't seen a whole lot since you know the day um, <laughs> back in it, uh, and so it's it was good to see her in in here. She's getting great great reviews uh, for her performance in this film, so maybe this you marks uh, something of a comeback. You didn't like her in X Men Apocalypse? Why was she in X Men Apocalypse? She was Scott's teacher. <laughs> for crying out loud she was <laughs> oh man yeah no i totally forgot that there you go, there you go. no all, well, I, all i've got is like short circuit and the breakfast right. club right i mean that's, those are the ones that that stick for me right exactly so. well and i should mention that addison timlin who is the lead in this um she is going to be in the movie girl in a box or girl in the box that is uh premiering on tv here very soon um, which I worked on when they filmed oh, the no um, exteriors up here in uh, up in Prescott, Arizona. So it'll be nice to see her in this. Uh, she certainly is somebody who has presence on screen, and I look forward to seeing what she brings to the table in this one. Outstanding, Andy. Good pick. Yes, this one is coming out. Like I said, it uh, it played at South by Southwest. It's going to be uh, right now. It's a limited and internet release, October fourteenth. Well, seemed like a good idea at the time. Brenner. McQueen, Colburn, Vaughn, Brunson, Bacoltz, Dexter, The Magnificent Seven. We wish you to help us. There's this man, Calvera. A thief. A murderer. He and his men, they steal our food. And then they leave us to starve. And he will do so until he is stopped. Even five won't give us too much trouble. There won't be any trouble. Just ride on. Ride on. I'm going into the hills for the winter. 
Where am I going to get the food for my men? Buy it or grow it. Or maybe even work for it. Somehow I don't think you solved my problem. We deal and live, friend. Solving your problems isn't that a lot. The Magnificent Seven, Andy, here we go, 1960, uh, directed by John Sturgis, uh, written by William Roberts, amid great credit controversy, starring uh, Yul Brenner, Eli Wallach, Steve McQueen, Charles Bronson, Robert Vaughn, Brad Dexter, James Coburn, and a whole cast of fantastic uh, uh, local characters uh, to fill out the village. And uh, uh, here we are. This is uh, the next in our series of films uh, based on The Seven Samurai, this the most directly. I really enjoy this. This is a really fun movie to watch, although I, I did feel after watching it right on the heels of Seven Samurai, it really felt truncated. It felt um, it, it felt like uh, there just definitely wasn't the same sort of character development that we had in the previous film, and I, I wish that there was a little more heft to this one. But I still really enjoy it. That's really interesting because I I think that the other side of that particular coin is that this film was chock full of economical decisions that that where there could have been heft, uh, they ended up, you know, truncating with economy, with scene economy, with character economy, with little nods of the hat or motions of the hand where they, they could have really, you know, developed a whole scene. And and for me, that added a lot to just the development of these characters in their sort of Old West ways. And I, I really uh, appreciated it. Uh, I was really surprised at how well the Japanese themes of honor and loyalty and Bushido, all the things we talked about with Seven Samurai last week, felt right at home in Magnificent Seven. Oh, totally. Yeah, it absolutely... Um, totally hits me with all of that sort of stuff. This is the same thing. You kind of get the same vibe in some uh, later westerns, where it really is about kind of like the um, the the birth of modern civilization and the death of the old west. Yeah, and and that whole you know death of the samurai really fits in nicely with kind of the death of the cowboys and that whole way of life, and that definitely rang true here. And I really liked how. Um, these guys were able to kind of uh, rework that theme in here so, so well. Oh, well they, and they didn't really have to rework all that much. I mean, here were our yeah. samurai, our, our, you know, gunfighters across the West, and they they serve no master. They come to together for this mission to serve the the land to help the people to because you know they they recognize some of the same themes that you are you, you are you, you cannot no man can stand alone um and when they are together they are stronger and and you can see that in the team building segment you know the the entire first act is is you know a demonstration of all these guys and how miserable they are when they're you know doing a job by themselves uh, yeah. They're either running from the law or they're chopping wood or they're, they're not happy and they're not using their skills. But when they come together, uh, that they, that becomes something special. There is a lot of economy in the script here. I mean, there was in the previous film, as we talked about, how even though it was a very long film, it still was very economically written. Likewise here, where you have bits that are just kind of just dropped in, like you have a line about, um, you know, who takes, um, uh, you know, you're not going to take um, a money like or a deal like this unless you're on the run from the law or something like that. I can't remember exactly what the line was, mm-hmm. 
but just kind of hinting that that Yul Brynner's character, Chris, may be kind of, you know, there might be a darker past that he has, and he's kind of just kind of moving. As he says, he's heading south. He's It sounded like he's already headed south of the border anyway. And here he is kind of teaming up to do this whole little bit, you know? Yeah, right. And and um and kind of be our our lead man. Um you know, the the film was apparently well received by Kurosawa himself. Uh and and we should say predictably since as we said last week, much of much of Kurosawa's work was inspired by uh you know, the old John Ford westerns and here so seeing his sort of vision of the Seven Samurai on screen as a western probably uh you know, felt right at home. Um but it was interesting to note in hearing other people talk about Kurosawa's uh, appreciation of the film. Uh, they were specific to say that he appreciated it as a Western, uh, but we don't have, unless you found, I did not find any uh, any writing on uh, Kurosawa talking about it as an actual uh, homage to the Seven Samurai. You know, and it's so funny because you never know who to really believe. Like, right. is this is this John Sturgis saying this or, you know, who's actually talking about this? Um, somebody said that um, I think that Kurosawa s- was supposedly reported um, to be very impressed with the film. And he actually presented John Sturgis with a sword. And then um, what was the other thing that I uh, I heard? I think it was the fact that he actually thought that... Magnificent Seven was a disappointment, although entertaining. He said it is not a version of Seven Samurai. Yeah, that's an interesting sort of uh, that's that's another way to, <laughs> to interpret uh, a, a little bit more negatively. Yeah. this whole idea of it's a great western, right? But n- not much of a interpretation of Seven Samurai. I, on that end, uh, clearly disagree. Yeah, I think this fits thematically very well as a uh, as a reinterpretation of that story. That being said, this one definitely feels like it was designed to be pure entertainment, whereas Seven Samurai felt like it was designed to be, uh, well, interestingly, Kurosawa, you know, designed that one to also be pure entertainment. But there's something about the way what he's designing for pure entertainment comes across as much more uh, like there's a lot more heft to it, a lot more depth, a lot more um, gravitas. Whereas here, this one just feels very American West or American American Western. Maybe we just need 20 more years. Yeah, you know, we'll you know what I mean? Maybe we just need more time to appreciate the uh, the um, uh, the depth of the American uh cowboy spirit well i think some of it comes from this whole idea of how this film some people say this was kind of the end of the great american western kind of what john ford was doing with with the westerns and how sergio leone who comes along in a few years kind of transforms the westerns and makes them darker there's a lot more stuff going on in them and and took the westerns in a totally different direction this one still felt very much like all of the westerns that came before it and I think that that whole idea of what an American Western is ended up changing. And um, in a way, I think if Leone were to actually do the remake of this, uh, I think there would have been a lot more of that gravitas. I don't think he would have been afraid to have um, characters like the old man get killed outside of town. You know, Mm -hmm. we don't see that here. We don't see uh, we don't see kind of, you know, Chico riding off with his girlfriend to uh, to become a man. You know, we don't have those sorts of moments. And I think it's interesting that this one does feel 
very much more just entertaining and sanitary than uh, what Kurosawa was doing. The script, uh, there's some juggling credit uh, around the script. Originally uh, written by Walter Bernstein, this was before Sturgis was around, uh, he, and, and we'll talk a little bit more about the, the juggling production rights uh, in a little bit. Um, it then ended up in the hands of Walter Newman. What I understand is that the the version that is largely on screen is the Newman version, but he was uh, unable or unavailable to come in during some rewrites, and so they brought in William Roberts to do those rewrites, and uh, it, through a credit, a, a credit challenge or dispute, ended up with sole credit, and Newman ended up uncredited. Is that your understanding? He didn't end up uncredited. He was upset that they that uh, they were going to give co-credit to William Roberts uh, with him because Walter Newman did essentially write the script. William Roberts, uh, and I think what I what it sounded like is Walter Newman didn't want to go to ne- to Mexico to do rewrites during the production because, um, and we'll talk a little bit about this, but Mexico required a censor to be on set uh, to handle uh, rewrites, um, and. Walter Newman, it sounded like he may not have been interested, I think is is kind of what I was hearing. Um, so they brought William Roberts to do that, who did really, it sounds like, just essentially the rewrites based on the censor. And yet, when the when the WGA compared, you know, the, the different drafts of the script, they determined that William Roberts got co-writing credits with Walter Newman. Walter Newman was very upset about that, and so he took his name off. He said, you're going to give me the credit or take me off the film. So it, it ended up getting William Roberts as the sole writing credit, which, uh, you know, this is one of those crazy ways that Hollywood works. I clearly am ill-equipped to understand the machinations of the WGA. So my understanding is there was a, a Gary Cooper movie, uh, Vera Cruz, that came out. Uh, I believe it was Vera Cruz that came out um, a little bit before this one, 1954. And um, and Mexico, the people of Mexico were very upset with how they were portrayed in that film. They um, it, it just really bothered them, and so. Um, they were real hesitant about what films um, were filmed in Mexico and how they were uh, portrayed. And so basically, they, they uh, John Sturgis, who is a very, very kind of a, a very honest guy, he's a very stand-up sort of person, he said, no, we're going to do this uh, right. What do we need to do to make this work with you guys? First of all, it ended up being a co-production with Mexico. And then um, the and Mexico said you need to have a sensor on set that is, that they are going to rework with you, kind of tell you what's not going to work, and so uh, anything basically that put these Mexican peasants in a bad light had to be changed. Um, and even though it was in the original script that these these uh, villagers go off to hire, uh, you know, these protectors. They the censor said no, you can't have um, peasants going off to hire American. A gunman, because now it's just going to make it look like these peasants um, really, you know, we can't do anything unless a big American comes and saves us sort of thing, which, you know, I can certainly see um, that being the case. And and so they had them rewrite it and saying, look, um, we'll say you have to go buy guns. And so now these guys are going to buy guns. And then they end up, you know, falling into the situation where they hire the protectors. And it kind of works. Kind yeah. Of. I, I was a little... Um, as I thought about it, I, I, I foolishly I thought that, um, or you know, foolish on their part, the script was still designed as a repeat of Seven Samurai, 
And so unfortunately, when the the the, the Magnificent Seven come riding into the village with the uh, with the villagers, all of the rest of the villagers are still acting scared as if they're expecting gunfighters, not just guns. And so that didn't really make sense to me the way that that script ended up playing out. Because, I mean, these guys go off to buy guns. Why are the villagers now scared when they come back and all hiding in their things? That kind of... Well, no, I, I mean, I, I think I, I think that was because it, they came back with people who were unfamiliar. If they went out to buy guns, they didn't expect them to come back with these gunfighters. I don't think they would have all hidden away. I think they would have, I don't know, my impression is that they would have just been out curious, like, oh, who's who's coming? <laughs> uh, I don't know. I don't know. I think it made sense to me. I, it makes sense to me that they didn't expect these foreign gunfighters and, and that they would hide. Because we our experience of them is that they were already you know, willing to hide um, every time foreign elements come into the village. So they kind of made the case. I.e. Calvera. Yeah, exactly. Right. You know, come in with hats and guns and suddenly, um, you know, that's something to be feared. It's conditioned. So I bought it. Whatever. Okay. All right. All right. It's it's not a huge issue. It's just something I certainly noticed as, you know, it, it worked in the Kurosawa version because the way that it was written. But then in the rewrite here, it's like, well, all of a sudden that doesn't quite work. But yeah. I'll yeah. let it slide. I'll let yeah. it slide. Um, you know, and then other changes. The big one for me, I just, I don't know if I felt like there were any deaths that really impacted me in this film. Again, is this a sign of it being kind of an American Western at the time? Like none of the villagers when they die was impactful. The old man doesn't even die in this, in this one. Mm-hmm. And of the, of our four, seven who die, uh, it didn't really hit me. I mean, I liked their stories and it was touching. Actually, I will say Charlie Bronson's, um, I think his death might have been a little touching, really because the bond he created with those kids and the fact that those kids are kind of putting the flowers on the grave. That that I think was a little bit. Uh, there was that was tender. That was absolutely the one I was going to say too. Yeah. Of of all of them, that was the one. I I loved the signal uh, sequence. The kids across the mountains. Yes, yes, a little Return of the King action going on there. Absolutely, I thought that was very cool. Uh, and there was some some uh, alternate treatment of uh, Calvera. Right, how he kind of comes in midway. Uh, certainly, I, I know that was a concern of uh, Wallach's when he read the script. He's like, you know, the guy comes in at the beginning and then he comes in at the end. But um, here he got to come in midway through. And then, of course, he's got the big surprise um, when uh, when they go to his um, his hideout and find him not there, only to come back to the village and find that he's kind of taken it over and basically has them and kicks them out. That was a, I, I kind of liked that change. It felt very much like modern remakes and how they find ways to tweak the story that you're so familiar with to do something a little bit different with it. Let's talk a little bit about John Sturgis as a director of this film. You know, as, as somebody who used to be an editor at MGM, he definitely keeps his films taut. I mean, he really knows how to kind of shape it, move things along. Uh, and, and really, I just find watching his films, even when they're long, like The Great Escape, he has incredible pace and it just works really well. I really enjoy watching his films um, because there's just a flow to them. Uh, you know, I sat down and watched this one with my kids and they were both absorbed instantly. Yeah. And, uh, you know, for my kids who have been raised largely with an appetite for uh, contemporary films and contemporary pacing to to be able to sit down and watch this movie, it says a lot, I think, about the pacing of this film that it kept just rapt attention uh, over the course of the two hours. 
Yeah, absolutely. It's it's uh, it, it's a sign that he's a director who knows how to put a film together. And also, I think with his actors, I mean, he he knows how to just let them live their roles. And, you know, he doesn't force his view of what he thinks the role should be on the actors. And I think, especially in a film like this, where you've got seven guys, I mean, that's just bound to have a lot of testosterone on set. And I, and I know we'll talk about some of that with Yul Brynner and uh, Stephen Queen being in the film. But I think that he um, he found a way to balance it with these guys. And there was a story on set about, uh, it was a scene when they were... Um, on their way to the village and all seven of the guys plus the village, the three villagers were riding uh, and they cut across a Creek and how Yul Brynner's leading the way. And then, and then each of the guys, as they come behind him, do something uh, to make their, uh, their part seem bigger. Like Steve McQueen um, drops down from his horse and scoops uh, up some water with his hat to put on his head to kind of cool himself off. And then the next guy starts hamming it up and the next guy hams it up even more until they're all so big and broad that it just is almost a joke. And John Sturgis just cut, he doesn't say anything. He doesn't cut. He just films it and he just looks to his ADs like, yeah, this is how this one's going to be or something. What, what I love so much about that story is actually the, the, the fact that all the rehearsals of that uh, of that particular sequence, none of them did any of those things. It was only when they <laughs> actually rolled the cameras that they all come out of there, uh, come out to to try to one up the guy in front of them. Right, exactly. That was funny. Very. Funny. Um, it, he uh, he struggled financially to get this movie done. This was a film that, for some reason, they they weren't completely behind, and so yeah, he it sounded like he had to actually put some of his own money into this thing and. And may even have, uh, I don't think he lost money necessarily, but I don't think he actually made anything. So, yeah, yeah. That's, uh, that's tough. I guess you're really passionate about your yeah. project when that's right. how you're doing it. Uh, we've got some first shot, last shot. Yes, we do. Um, I'll take the first shot. Go for uh, it. After a, we, we're on a, a, what seems like a still over the, the farm uh, for a very long time over the credits roll. And uh, after a, a very long time, several minutes over the credits, uh, we actually see in the very lower right, we see the bandits ride in from the lower right of the frame. Uh, while the credits are still rolling, we see this long line of horse-clad little ants down in the corner. Uh, we cut to a medium shot of the farmers. They're doing their thing with corn, and they all, like, perk up their ears, they all notice that uh, somebody's coming, and it is a scary thing. Especially with that music. Oh, yes. <laughs> right, and then the last shot, um, we've got, you know, after after the conversation between Brenner and McQueen about, uh, you know, uh, the villagers were, or the old man was right, we're not the ones who won here, it was really the villagers. Essentially, the same conversation we have at the end of Seven Samurai. It really was. Then we see the kids putting the flowers on Bernardo's grave. We see the old man smiling as Brenner and McQueen ride off. And then we cut to Brenner and McQueen, uh, their horses just kind of riding out of town, a nice wide shot of the uh, of the area as they just ride off together, those two of the seven, leaving, of course, um, Chico with his uh, his woman, deciding to become a farmer and settle back down. And uh, yeah, that's how we end. You know, it's interesting. It's, it's similar to uh, Seven Samurai, especially in the first shot. What is interesting is the last shots. In, in Seven Samurai, we end on a shot of the graves. Like, this is a... Um, a sign of things to come very much thematic the way that that ended 
the the Magnificent Seven ends with these two not quite riding off into the sunset, but you could almost say that, right? You've got these two cowboys as they kind of rot off, right, ro- are riding off. They're victorious. They've they've won. There definitely is some somberness to it and everything um, because of the conversation that we've just had. And, you know, we see Bernardo's grave and everything, but we see the old man smiling and these two guys riding off. There's a little more uh, uplifting feel to it. And part of me wonders if this is if this is Sturgis ending it the way an American Western should end. You know, our our heroes are victorious and they're now riding off, although it's obviously uh, there. There's a difference there because instead of seven riding off, now we're just down to two. So there is definitely a sign of kind of, you know, there's been some tough times to get to this point. Yeah, you know, I I totally hear that. For me, this pairing in particular is is weak, and and I I feel like I can't watch it without comparing it to directly to Seven Samurai. And the 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 opening sequence of Seven Samurai, there's there's such strength. The way the bandits enter the frame, right? The way oh, yeah. the bandits ride over the hillside. It's a little bit of it's a closer shot. This one, it is the meekest entry of diabolical bandits that you know we could have have them entering as absolutely small across the landscape as as you can make them uh, and still be visible. I thought that was just such a weak opening. And the last shot, um, it, it felt way too chaotic to me to be uh, sort of that that sort of reflective or somber, um, you know, uh, thoughts on our lost, our fallen soldiers, our fallen kin uh, that we had in Samurai, where people have gone back to work, and the tragedy of it is that they've gone back to work in the field, their village is saved, but we're stuck on these lone graves. And what I found interesting in in Magnificent Seven that they put the kids in the shot with the graves and that that immediately um erodes that sense of loneliness that that in fact you know there is a greater appreciation for these these you know seven western samurai um than we wanted to see than I wanted to see in these characters I needed to see more of that loneliness in life and in death and I think in that regard the last shot failed I yeah I totally agree I mean I you know I'm, I'm working for that one <laughs> <laughs> trying to yeah. get it to this point. I definitely agree with you about the first shot as well. It's interesting. I think, like I said, the only thing that really lets you know that Calvera is coming, that he's the bad guy, is the fact that the music kicks in. Yeah. Otherwise, you wouldn't necessarily know that True. something bad is about to happen. Whereas in Seven Samurai, it's that shot of the horizon. You get those just dark silhouettes of these characters just coming over the hill toward you. It definitely felt more ominous and threatening as they charge directly toward the camera before they kind of veer off to the left. Uh, let's run through the cast, shall we? Starting with Yule Brenner. Good old Yule. Oh, I think this is our first for Yule. It is. I actually yeah. can't believe that. I know. Isn't it crazy? Yeah, it is crazy. Uh, I, I don't think it will be the last. He is, uh, he's, he's, well, he's fantastic. Uh, he's He was born in Vladivostok uh, in the Far Eastern Republic. Uh, it, technically, he's a he's a modern Mongol. Interesting. That's how that's how Coburn referred to him as a <laughs> Mongol. Uh, he says of his character in this film, "There are two clean things about my character: his soul and his gun, and uh, everything else is the man in black." It's interesting. He definitely is, is. It's kind of like he's playing opposite stereotype here. This is something that I really do enjoy about this film: the fact that 
like I said earlier, this is this guy. We don't necessarily know what sort of background he has. It seems like there might be some darkness in there. Is he on the run from the law? What's going on? Why is he taking this job for 20 bucks? Uh, I really enjoy that about him. But he's doing something really noble, and he's helping these poor people against this this bandit and this group of bandits. I really enjoy that he's kind of playing opposite the stereotype here. I think it's, it's uh, really interesting. In an interesting bit of trivia, he really buried himself in the part and the set. He married his third wife, Doris, and they used the same props. Uh, as were used in the festival scene uh, to celebrate their nuptials. Going back to his wardrobe, I have to mention that um, I actually dressed like uh, his character from Westworld for Halloween uh, once, uh, who is very much a man in black. Interestingly, I'd love to compare the man in black kind of outfit he has here with his Westworld character and see if it's kind of, if if they patterned the Westworld uh, character after this one. I am sure of it. I'm yeah. sure of it. He has to have. Yeah. So it, it's such an iconic uh, thing. Yeah, I'm just looking at him side by side. It's absolutely, absolutely. Well, I mean, how <laughs> hard can you do a man in black character? Uh, well, the, trust me. When I was looking for his costume bits and I was showing people the pictures that, you know, you get very specific <laughs> about, oh, well, this is such and such type of cowboy hat. Oh, well, this is such and such type of gun and belt. I was like, wow, these guys are really specific. They're serious. I don't, yeah. I don't know all this. Can I just buy this $5 gun and use it? I <laughs> uh, played opposite Eli Wallach as Calvera, leader of the bandits. Was it surprising to you or interesting in any way, uh, or was it just me, that Eli ended up as the second build on the on the cast list at the beginning of the film? I don't think it was. I, I I mean, it's it's great. I think that's fantastic. But for me, in a film called The Magnificent Seven, I guess I was really just expecting the seven to be our, our first uh, seven people listed. I, maybe that was just me. That's really interesting. I mean, I, 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 guess I, I guess I get your point there. I never really gave it uh, all that much thought because, and I probably should have, not only because, yes, he's not one of the seven, but also because of his relative time on screen although i will say he certainly is notable i mean he's yeah. really his, his character is so big and broad it makes sense that he'd be top build i guess but i mean and steve mcqueen wasn't huge I, I mean there are things that make sense at the same time though eli wallach at the, i think he was mostly known as a stage actor at the time he'd done some films before this but it's not like it's not like he was yul brenner no he was still mostly broadway at that point yeah um, so I, yeah, I think you're, that's, that's right. I didn't think much about it, but, um, uh, but I think you're, I think you're right. I thought it was great seeing him in here, uh, especially after we, you know, we talked to him in, uh, the good, the bad and the ugly. And, uh, um, you know, it's, it, it's interesting to see him as the connective tissue between, um, the, the thematic change in these Westerns. How do you like him as Calvera versus, uh, his, uh, his versus the ugly in the good, the bad and the ugly? You know, I, I definitely, I prefer him as Calvera, um, although I, I, I don't know if I, I think I might be hard-pressed to actually rank these two films side by side. I, I really enjoyed, um, I enjoyed both of his, his performances in these things. You could, they, they just really feel very much like, you know, birds of a feather. I, I would d- definitely go with Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. Um, but I really do enjoy Calvera. I think there's something really clever about um, him as the head of the bandits. And just, I mean, I love that he, you know, he's like when he was talking to Sturgis about, you know, doing something differently. He's like, you know, what do these bandits always do with all this money that they're always stealing? I want to wear a red silk shirt and have gold caps on my teeth. Right. 
I think that's fantastic. (laughs) And I think maybe it's made better for me because of... Um, because of how he was treated by his his band of of by the band of thugs that followed him, you know these guys that were hired on, and they they took him under his under their wings. Uh, they, they he they they adopted him. You know, apparently he would come on set and the wrangler would have his horse ready, but they would they would know never give the horse directly to uh, Eli Wallach. Give it to one of the gang members. They will prepare the horse and give it to Eli Wallach. So he ends up like that whenever he was not on set they would all go riding for hours you know out across the across the plains um and and i just love that story i love (laughs) that he was he was sort of adopted um by his own gang i think that's great this little jew from new york (laughs) (laughs) jew from new york playing the mexican head of a band of of uh, brigands i love it i I love eli wallach he's just so great He's yeah. great. It, this was definitely at a time with some weird ethnic casting choices. So we'd get that out of the way. Yes, it's very <laughs> strange. Uh, Indeed. But, yeah. So Steve McQueen, Vin Tanner. Ah, uh, good old McQueen. We love him here. We certainly talked about him a number of times. Yeah. And I mean, you know, he's fine. He's he's good as Vin Tanner. I mean, he brings his Steve McQueen presence. It's certainly not uh, the great escape um, or bullet, but I, I still think he's got a clearly has the screen presence here all it takes is those moments where where you know you know yule brenner gives him that finger that one finger and and steve mcqueen holds up his two fingers like you know you've got two like those moments it's like mcqueen does that so well he's just so cool when he does that oh he's he's the best he's also right crazy he is crazy uh as the story goes his wife at the time uh reports that uh in order to get to be in this film he had to get out of the tv show he was doing wanted dead or alive at the time and and so he had to get out of that the only way to get out of that was uh, to be uh, in an accident so he got in the car and he said okay hold on and he went and he crashed the car so that he would be uh, he would be injured enough so that he would get out of uh, shooting the TV show and be allowed to go do this movie, and um, that that's uh, that's a little bit uh, a little bit dirty pool, but I'm glad uh, he did yes. it because he's in the movie <laughs> because because he's great in the movie. Yes, this really gets into the uh, into the the one-upsmanship between Brenner and uh, McQueen. Uh, that uh, they they definitely had their uh, on screen rivalry. Yeah, speaking of that testosterone, I mean McQueen, you know he, I mean this is called the Magnificent Seven. There are going to be seven guys who are kind of like that you're following. He wanted to make sure that people would notice him, so he was always doing something like little touches, shaking a, a shotgun round before loading it, repeatedly checking his gun while in the background of a shot. Wiping his hat rim, playing with his hat, whatever it was that he could be doing. And it really started annoying Brenner. And finally, Brenner told him, he's just like, hey, knock it off. All I have to do is take my hat off and nobody's going to be looking at you anymore. (laughs) Which I think is really funny. Apparently, his his bald noggin was enough for people to to just uh, fawn over. Uh, Word is he wanted horse's part, horse book book holds his part uh, as Chico. 
because it was a bigger part. And yet, I got to say, I loved McQueen exactly where he was. There is something about this, and this is what has always stuck with me. And I think it is largely the result of this one-upsmanship between these two guys. This movie, for me, is almost more than a team of seven. Uh, this is a very much a buddy movie between Yul Brynner and Steve McQueen, between Chris and Vin. I actually love their sort of understated relationship. I do too. And, uh, you know, that's something that um, uh, I guess the way that the structure of the team and like who knows who and and how the team is formed in Seven Samurai versus here, it's slightly different. But I enjoy I enjoy the way that uh, that Vin comes into the scene here and ends up being a part of the team and does end up kind of creating that relationship with Brenner. I really do enjoy that. Yeah. Because I think in... In the Seven Samurai, he ends up. It's it's his uh, his old partner. Uh, in this case, it would have been Harry Luck, Brad Dexter, who would have ended up living if it were directly patterned after uh, Seven Samurai. Right, right. Uh, let's then talk about the good Horst Buchholz. Good old Horst, and introducing Horst Buchholz as uh, he is a German actor, also playing a Mexican. Yes, yes, like you said. <laughs> and actually, what's interesting about it, too, is that he, he didn't do a whole lot more uh, American films, right? I mean, he really ended up going back to Europe. I, I get a sense that he's kind of danced between the two countries, but seems like might have been mostly popular in Germany. He died in Germany in 2003, uh, yeah. and his, his last films were, were all very much German films. Yeah. But boy, did he work right up until the day he died. Like right after this, though. I mean, he did uh, Billy Wilder's One, Two, Three. I yeah. mean, so, you know, there was a period that he was doing. Uh, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, I don't know. I, I found him interesting. I, I I can't say that I ended up liking him that much. Yeah. What was it that turned you off? I don't know. I couldn't figure out if it was the way that the character was written. And, and he's no Toshiro Mifune. And, and weirdly, though, although we should say his character is actually a blend of uh, Katsushiro and uh, Kikuchio. You know, yes, he, he yeah. kind of ties both of those together, which was an interesting choice on their part to go that route. Um, I don't know. I, I guess I just didn't. Uh, I, I don't know. I, I don't know if it's because he was German and he was, you know, playing a Mexican or what. But I just I, I had a hard time really connecting with him. And I found it interesting that Sturgis really did connect with him. Connected with him a lot. In fact, apparently shot more film of Buchholz than anyone else uh, on the set. Really connected with him. Yeah, and, and like that whole bit with uh, the the bull or the cow where he... Right. You know, he's playing the bullfighter. I mean, that was all improv. Yeah, yeah. See, that worked for me. He was a, he was a fine addition. Uh, I liked the kid. Um, but not as much as I like Charles Bronson. Oh. Because, Charles come Bronson. on, Charles Bronson. <laughs> he's the best. He is great. Uh, yeah, he's great, and and I love his introduction. I love his chopping wood in the back, and and that he's he's an expensive cleaner, and uh, turns out that twenty dollars is is a lot of money right now, and uh, <laughs> that gets him gets him onto the team. Um, he he really is great, and as Bernardo O'Reilly, and uh, uh, he works so well on the team. Uh, Robert Vaughn. Robert Vaughn is uh he's a um he's a good actor to enjoy on screen. I I go between uh, really enjoying him and finding him pretty good. Um here I think that he works pretty well. It's just one of those parts that um I felt like they kind of did a rewrite on what are we going to do with this character make him a little more interesting to give him kind of a backstory. 
and I like his story. I think there's an interesting character arc that he has to go through here, but I just don't feel like they give enough time to it to really warrant his transition. Yeah, I, I feel like he is, his is probably one of the most underserved characters. Um, you know, we know the least about him uh, at the end. Um, I don't know, maybe next to Harry Luck, but but it just feels like he's he's the most mysterious, underdeveloped character of the of the seven to me. What I find most interesting is that they actually cast him to uh, to be essentially the same character in Battle Beyond the Stars, which was also kind of that that unofficial remake of the seven samurai right. that, uh, that corman did right, right i think that's hilarious that uh, <laughs> he plays the experienced assassin with a price on his head looking for a place to hide yeah brad dexter harry luck there's a guy that i've never seen before and never seen <laughs> since <laughs> what brad dexter no i've seen him but he's just one of those you know that guy guys he, he is know? he is definitely that guy but yeah. uh, run silent, run deep. Uh, we he was in the asphalt jungle. Yeah, so I, I mean you know we've seen him. We have, but he just disappears in things. <laughs> like <laughs> I, I don't know. Texture. I, I enjoy seeing him, but yeah, it's just like oh yeah, I've seen like scrolling through his credits. I'm like oh yeah, I guess I have seen that. I yeah. saw him in shampoo. Yeah, <laughs> I guess I missed that. That's right. Oh, okay. He was that guy. Yeah. So uh, you know, I mean, he's fine here. I think what's uh, most interesting about him is that um, he was working on a project with Frank Sinatra a few years after this um, called uh, None But the Brave. And Frank Sinatra, um, during their downtime, was drowning. Um, off. I think they were in Hawaii filming that. And he ended up saving Sinatra from drowning. And uh, because of that, Frank Sinatra brought him on as producer, of course, <laughs> for Jeez. his next few films. And it sounds like, uh, the, uh, you know, that's uh, sometimes how the Hollywood machine works. You saved my life. I'm going to make you a You're producer, a producer. Kid. <laughs> <laughs> uh, James Coburn. Uh, I just love James. He Coburn. is so good. Um, it, it is unfortunate. Uh, he he is you know in the the parallel to Seven Samurai. I mean, he's the master swordsman, the silent master swordsman, and and uh, he apparently uh, said that this was. Uh, this was like Christmas and his birthday all wrapped up in one because he had he loved the Magnificent Seven and he got the he got he the loved call. Seven Samurai. I mean the Seven Samurai yeah, and he got the call that he might be up for this one and then the next call he got was come pick up your knives and uh, so he was he was very excited to be in this film he mostly uh, sleeps uh, in the film a lot he and <laughs> I, I tell me if if I'm not alone here but um, uh, Nightmare Before Christmas. Are you uh-huh. with me? Oh, uh, okay. J- uh, Jack. Oh, <laughs> Jack. Jack Skellington. Right. Yes. Is that not James Coburn in this movie? Yes. Like that's really funny. The way his legs work. Yes. I thought that was brilliant. <laughs> oh, that's so funny. That is so funny. You know what frustrated me about him, and this was going back to how they served Robert Vaughn's character in this film. I felt like they set up the whole thing with him being this amazing knife master. And he does this duel when we meet him where he competes with this guy. I mean, it's the exact same setup that we have in Seven Samurai. You know, they they do a, a trial duel first. And then this guy is so upset that he wants a real duel. And, you know, he is basically trying to prove that he can throw his knife faster than this other guy can draw and shoot. And sure enough, he, you know, he throws his knife and sticks it in this guy's chest before the guy's able to pull his gun out and get a shot off. 
Um, that's great, but then we never, ever see him use a knife again. Ever. Until the very end of the film, when he's been shot and he's dying, and he pulls his knife, and it kind of tosses it, and it hits a wood pile. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> that was it? Yeah. That's all we get? Yeah, that was that the hero was a real, shot. That was a real... Uh, talk about setup and payoff. That is yeah. the worst payoff. <laughs> Holy cow. Uh, yeah, no, that was not good. I would have liked to see more of that. But right. I still like James Coburn in this. He's a very cool character. And he only had, I think, like 17 lines, I think he said. You yeah. Know, he's, you know, which, uh, you know, I don't know. That made me think of Jason Bourne, who had, what, 26 or something? Yeah, yeah, yeah like, yeah, more than that. But uh, James Coburn does his lines really well. Yes, he does. <laughs> uh, Valentin de Vargas. Yeah, I just threw his name in there because I thought it was interesting. He's uh, right behind Calvera in a number of shots. He's one of his henchmen, Santos. And uh, if you uh, have a touch of evil in your head, you will recognize him instantly as that horribly wicked teenager who goes into the hotel room to uh, uh, ruin Janet Lee. He's he's just a wicked, wicked guy in that film. He it's great. certainly is. <laughs> he's yep. a wicked guy. Sean <laughs> Alonso plays the villager Miguel. Uh, and he is notable because of where he went after this movie. Yeah, what I find so interesting is that uh, that he ended up becoming this major cinematographer. And uh, you wouldn't know that um, watching the film. But yeah, John Alonzo, he's just one of the villagers. And there he is uh, later, I think just a few years later, 64, he shoots a short film and then some documentaries. And then uh, starting in, uh, he does some National Geographic specials. And then in 69, he's uh, he's the cinematographer for films. And, uh, you know, he does things like, oh, I don't know, Harold and Maude, Chinatown, uh, you know, the, the Bad News Bears, Black Sunday, Scarface. Scarface, Blue yeah. Thunder. <laughs> right. Nothing in common, some Tom Hanks action. Star Trek Generations. I mean, wow. Yeah. I don't know. This you don't need amazing. to really leave that one in there. Hey, no. Yeah. Star Trek Generations. It's not the best. But did we say Scarface or Chinatown? <laughs> yeah, Oscar nominee for Chinatown. I mean, yeah. this guy uh, knew what he was doing with the camera. So, yeah, fascinating. that uh, 82 know, course... solid credits. Well, 81 solid credits and Star Trek Generations. <laughs> All right, let's talk a little bit about getting it made. I thought this was an interesting story. So uh, apparently, Yul Brenner sees Seven Samurai and calls his lawyer in Japan the next day and says, I want to buy the rights. What he doesn't know is that this other guy, Lou Morheim, uh, beats him to it and optioned the rights for Seven Samurai for $250. Oh, yeah. That's crazy. That's like That's like Andy and Pete money. <laughs> like we could we could have come up with that uh, so anyway here's uh here's this morheim and, and brenner come together brenner buys morheim's remake rights from him and was originally set to direct anthony quinn in the lead this is brenner uh set to direct anthony quinn in the lead the original draft of the screen screenplay uh had all of the uh the Seven uh, Magnificent Seven as Civil War vets uh, and not uh, gunfighters. Uh, Brenner called uh, Martin Ritt to develop it, uh, who hired Walter Bernstein to write the first draft of the script. Uh, By the time uh, Bernstein finished the script, Ritt had already left and production fell to Walter Mirisch. And then things got weird. (laughs) 
<laughs> That's one way to say it. Yeah. Uh, Mirish, who, I mean, we talked about the Mirish brothers when we talked about The Great Escape. Um, uh, I mean, he wanted uh, John Sturgis to direct it. And so, of course, he brought on John Sturgis. And that, of course, led to different screenwriters. And then we had all these other battles with the producers because Morheim still was on as a producer, but uh, Mirish wanted the sole producing credit. And so they had this huge lawsuit um, and, and Sturgis and uh, Morheim and, and uh, Mirish. And it ended up, uh, I think finally Monheim or Morheim, sorry, finally was just like, you know what? I, they gave him an associate producer credit and, and he settled. He said, you know what? Once you're in the courtroom, you have no idea what the outcome is going to be. So he took some money. He took the associate producer credit and he was good with that. And then, of course, Anthony Quinn, who was uh, removed from the project in this whole process, also sued uh, for six hundred fifty thousand, and he ended up losing. Nobody puts Ouch. Anthony Quinn in the corner. Yul Brenner does. <laughs> Yul Brenner does. I think that's just another. Uh, you know, it's one of those fascinating examples of how movies get made, uh, and it's unfortunate that it goes that way. But credit yeah. is credit. Okay, I, I don't think we can talk about seven, about uh, Magnificent Seven without mentioning Elmer Bernstein. Oh yeah, baby! This is it. This is one of the very best scores in movie history. They, uh, the it. theme, the theme for the Magnificent Seven is iconic. It's just, uh, just beautiful. It's brilliant. Yeah, I mean, it's. I mean, we talked about how great he was when we talked about the Great Escape and how great that theme was. And then you listen to this, and it's like, oh yeah, oh yeah, yeah baby. This is this is the this is the one. Uh, it and it fits just everywhere. It fits so well to the landscape. The the uh, that just incredible beat that they established throughout the entire thing you know and it's it's everywhere uh and and it picks up uh, we we get that first real taste of it right after the opening sequence we didn't even talk about the opening sort of action sequence to introduce us to our heroes um that is totally unrelated to the uh theme of the movie we talked about that with uh, seven samurai and they do it again here uh this is the uh, we've got to get this body buried in boot hill scene and boy when the hero music hits after the successful uh, completion of their initial mission and they're riding down the hill i'm i feel like i'm home i am absolutely home they've successfully brought me into this into this picture with uh visuals and music and it just works incredibly well together this score i don't think ever was actually released um then in 1994 there was a fantastic recording by the phoenix symphony orchestra here um that i think is just a beautiful beautiful um re-recording of the music and actually i think bernstein actually said this was kind of the the version to uh for him he felt like this was kind of like the iconic or this was the version to listen to no kidding yeah he really was uh very impressed with what the phoenix symphony orchestra did here um and i've actually heard the phoenix symphony orchestra play this several times and they have never failed they do an amazing job um playing this song it's just they always hit it out of the park i'll be darned um but uh, they they finally issued a uh, a soundtrack to this. I think it was ninety seven. It was a um, a few years after the Phoenix Symphony Orchestra's version came out. But it's a it's just a fantastic fantastic soundtrack. It's so easy to listen to. Obviously, it sells stuff. I mean, Marlboro cigarettes used the theme for a while. Um, it became kind of iconic with them. It has been used in just 
all sorts of movies and TV shows. I mean, just uh, bands play it when they're kind of opening. It's, uh, you know, Disney, uh, Disneyland Paris used it on their train. It's everywhere. I mean, the song is just one of those things that you just know. It, you may not have ever seen this movie, but you've heard this theme. Oh, yes. It's oh, yes. Good. It yeah. is that good. And yet, uh, the only no- Oscar nomination for this movie was for its score, and it did not win. That's right. It, uh, Ernest Gold won for Exodus. Yeah. Aye, aye, aye. Except for now, now that we've been talking about Exodus, I can't get it out of my head. <laughs> Which is funny, because I can't even uh, hum a bar from it. Yeah, I won't plague you with it, but you'll know it. Oh, you'll know it. Oh, yes, you will. <laughs> oh, yes. Oh, yes. Uh, how did it do with uh, award season? Did it get? Uh, we already talked. It didn't make uh, earn any Oscars. Did anybody give it any attention, or did it uh, just uh, just go right on its merry way? No, I mean, Robert Vaughn actually got uh, a most promising newcomer uh, nomination for, with the Golden Globes. Um, I guess that's kind of uh, the award to talk about. Not a whole lot else. I mean, there are a few kind of other other minor awards, but that's pretty much it. And remakes. Oh, we have remakes. Yes, we certainly do. Oh, yes. There were three sequels to this. Return of the Seven, Guns of the Magnificent Seven, and The Magnificent Seven Ride. You know, what's fun about uh, searching for The Magnificent Seven is you end up with all sorts of other titles, too. Uh, when I was searching for this on... Uh, uh, where was I searching? On Flick Chart. There's also a, a Magnificent, uh, what was it? What was it? Like Mag- Magnificent Seven Corpses or something like that. <laughs> yeah, it's funny how the Magnificent something has become such an iconic expression just from the title of this film. And uh, it's, uh, I mean, aside from these uh, these sequels, I mean, remakes, there was a TV series from 98 to 2000. Robert Vaughn would guest star sometimes as a judge. I didn't even know this, but the A-Team was actually designed originally as a combination of this paired with the Dirty Dozen, which I guess in retrospect, you think about it, you're like, oh, okay, yeah, I could totally see that. <laughs> totally, absolutely. Uh, Stephen King's novel, Wol- The Wolves of the Kala, uh, from 2003, took place in a town called Kala Bryn Sturgis, which had a very similar plot. And you can notice from the town's name, he throw in, throws in little uh, Bryn and Sturgis um, nods to uh, Brynner and, and John Sturgis. This is this is actually the fifth book in the Dark Tower series. Uh, have you have you read all of these? I haven't read any of them. Okay. I, I have read the first one. It was, it was a tough one for me. I understand I am uh, an anomaly. Well, I think it, it can be tough to get into that series yeah. Is, yeah. is what I've heard. But um, but I hear it's great, and I'm looking forward to the uh, to see what they do with it. And then, of course, you know, there's many more remakes and and whatever you want to call it, If you depending on if you think it's a remake of this or Seven Samurai or what it is. But, I mean, we're going to be talking about that in our next few uh episodes and and in terms of the popularity of this film it absolutely has cemented itself in our popular film culture as evidenced by just how often you can see this thing flipping channels yeah this is uh and we've talked about this on wizard of oz how that is the most uh shown tv or movie on american tv this is the second most shown movie on american tv which uh i find interesting that we've now covered both of those <laughs> i know and so who knows what the third is we'll find it i will be there. Uh, there's a whole series there uh which is interesting because apparently the studio had uh, very little faith in it when they started and i think even the cast was surprised at just how well this did how did it end up doing in the box office you know i wish i could really uh dig into this a lot more i could find very little um about 
about the information on this. Um, other than, let's see, it opened October 23rd, 1960. It cost uh, between two or three million, depending on what you read, which is somewhere between uh, 16 and 24 million uh, in today's dollars. But other than that, I couldn't find anything as far as uh, how well it did. I did read, or somebody on the commentary was talking about how it didn't do very well when it was domestically uh, released. Um, some of the uh, feedback from the critics, well, I mean, essentially was a comparison with uh, Seven Samurai and how this was just not nearly as good as that. But then they released it um, in internationally and it did gangbusters. It made a lot of money. And so then they brought it back domestically and re-released it and it did great. So it's just one of those weird things. Um Unfortunately, the only profit information I can find out there is just rentals, which is basically what the distributors ended up making on the film, not necessarily what the total gross was. So I don't really have uh, a good comparison, Um, but theoretically, it made its money back. All right. Well, I I think with that, Andy, we should probably head right over and rank it. Let's do it. At flickchart.com slash the next reel, you'll find all of the films that we have ranked and our stack rankings of all of our, what is it now, 261 movies? This will be 261. There you go. 261. This is our 261th film. Yeah, it's a variation on a theme of our night tonight, uh, Andy. Yeah. So, uh, and, and let's see, add this to your flick chart ranking, and let's just see how your ranking lines up with our ranking. Uh, I'll tell you, uh, it, it's good, but not as great as I would have expected on my very own, Andy. Same with me. All right, let's do it. Magnificent Seven, or here it is, the O Brother block. O Brother, where art thou? It oh, is O Brother for me. It is O Brother for me, too. That's going to drop it down yeah, right away. Yeah, that's it, yeah. The Magnificent Seven or The Adventures of Baron Munchausen? Uh, well, a Magnificent Seven. But Munchausen is really creative and interesting, but yeah, I would put on yeah. Magnificent Seven first. Magnificent Seven or King's Row? Little Ronnie Reagan. Uh, yeah, I would say Magnificent Seven for this one, too. Yeah, me too. Magnificent Seven or Big Fish? Big Fish. You love that one. I love that one. I'd say Magnificent Seven. Would you say it a lot? <sighs> like real hard? <laughs> I'll give you big fish. Okay. Little red. Me and, but me, me and John August, thank you. <laughs> Magnificent Seven or Seriana. I would say Seriana. Seriana, please. Magnificent Seven or Ministry of Fear. Back to our Fritz Lang series. Yeah. I'd say, uh, I, I, I'd say Magnificent Seven. Uh, the Magnificent Seven or Field of Dreams. Field of Dreams for me. Yeah, I'll give you Field of Dreams. I can't believe that. <laughs> the Magnificent Seven or Infernal Affairs. I'm going with Infernal I'm Affairs in, here. Yeah, all the way Infernal Affairs. All right, man. That leaves it at 159. Yeah, that is that is the uh, surprise. That is a full 100 lower than Seven Samurai, which was at 59. Yeah. All right. Well, it is that it is what it is. How did this do for you for Letterboxd? I, you know, I really enjoy this. this. It's a very fun film to watch. I still gave it, I what I did is I gave it three stars, but I gave it an extra half star just because Bernstein's music is so good. <laughs> it was the Andy half star of love. That's right, it was. <laughs> oh, goodness, that half star. I will, I will agree with you. I will give it a solid three and a half stars. I, and it's, I, I enjoyed this film immensely. I really did enjoy it, but, um, but but it's it, it just doesn't carry all of the weight that I and, and I, I feel like I may be doing it a disservice watching it as a part of this series and I may have rated it higher and just more fun 
um, you know, had we not just watched Seven Samurai and had that performed so well. I can see your point because um, I, I definitely felt that watching this in such proximity, yeah. um, like I said at the beginning of the show. But uh, that being said, I mean, the movie is what it is. Yeah. No, it is what it is. There you go. So what do we do next? This is crazy. I know. Next, we're going to talk about Three Amigos. Not quite seven anymore. We're down to three. And it's uh, they're a very funny three. This is uh, kind of more of a, a spoof, I guess, of The Magnificent Seven than an actual remake of Seven Samurai. But it still fits in the family. And so we're going to be uh, visiting uh, Steve Martin, Chevy Chase, and Martin Short as they voyage down to Mexico to uh, battle El Guapo. <laughs> What fun. It is a lot of fun, and I can't wait to talk about it, especially to talk about it as part of this crazy series. Absolutely. Makes it somehow makes it better. That's <laughs> indeed, it. Indeed. I gotta go to bed. Does my talking annoy you? Amazon giveth, Andy. As Amazon always doeth. Oh, we got a we got a pair of doozies. Yes, we do. I've got a one star by Love Thy Enemy, who says, "Get the bold original Seven Samurai by Kurosawa, and not this pale, plagiarist, imperialist, racist remake." Woo! Forget this dog and anything else done by Sturgis. They all look like pool patio party night at Rock Hudson's all male mansion. <laughs> The original Seven Samurai is so far and away superior to this all-male review, which, as in all Sturgis's films, feature his unknown beefcake of the week. Here, a German kid forced to grimace and grunt as the Hollywood stereotype Mexican gunfighter, here poorly stealing the role of the young want-to-be young samurai in the original. Sturgis fails to make the very real and human message of the original part of his plastic production. Both do or do not get the girl in the end, but in which one do you care? A great tragedy occurred when Anthony Quinn, who originally had the idea to make Seven Samurai into a Western, did not get the backing in time to do something decent with it. Instead, we have this absolutely ridiculous and racist dog in which Jewish Brooklyn's best Eli Wallach is forced to sweat and grunt and grimace as if a stereotypical Mexican bandit. Sergio Leone used him to much greater effect later. Same actor, better job. Don't waste your time and money on nothing but a magnificent soundtrack. Get the original Seven Samurai, way better, and you will be spared the embarrassment which is the Sturgis mess. For a further example, compare Bronson's woodcutting warrior scene stolen from the original with Kurosawa's scene, and tell me which tells far more of a story. Even cheat by leaving on the commentator, which one seems more real and more funny? And once again, it wasn't Bronson's fault that Sturgis is an idiot. Look at what Sergio Leone did with Bronson, telling his whole life story with a stare in Once Upon a Time in the West, a far more interesting Western than any of Sturgis's all-male fantasies. Get the Kurosawa original Seven Samurai, and you will never stop replaying it and always learn something new each time. The running commentary by some American guy isn't all that obnoxious after all. Then get thrown to blood, and you will never see Technicolor again. But skip Sturgis at all costs. Wow. Yes. Rock that, Hudson's all-male mansion. I like that. I know. That's the best. <laughs> this, this is somebody who really felt all of the feels, all of them in a row about this movie. Uh, and uh, I actually have somebody who, who I think um, we're going to call this uh, comment economy. 
Yes. Uh, feeling ripped off, offered a one star with this bit of depth. Not so good. Thanks, Amazon. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms. But in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM. And it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content. And we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash Transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash Transistor. Start growing your podcast today. <laughs>